Hey everybody, welcome to this month's Wiser Wednesday. We've got a fireside chat today with Sarah Furness. So uh, welcome, Sarah. Awesome to have you here. We're Great to um, be here. Thank you, James. We're going to be talking about mastering mindsets um, and you know how to make this the best year yet. Um, quick intro from me. I'm James Potton. I believe in a world of entrepreneurial success without burnout. Um, as I often say, sort of got the charred T-shirt. Um, and yeah, look, I mean. <clears throat> Sarah, you and I know each other from from way back. I think the last time we saw each other was 15 years ago, uh, something like yeah. that. And uh, yeah, and it was more socially. And, you know, I don't think either of us necessarily remember like th th those nights, but it was it was a lot of fun. And it was amazing to see you'd written um, your own book and your journey, you know, as a RAF pilot and uh, a helicopter pilot in and your book resonated with me. I, I bought it, our friend Emily like shared it. And I was like, ah, oh, I really like what you're saying in here. And it really, you know, there's something about mindsets that just, uh, just it, it is so important. And you realize it's it's almost everything. So love to jump into that with you today. Um, and, you know, I'll start with a quote, which uh, Henry Ford's, uh, you know, whether you think you can or you can't, you're right. So I, I think that's a really, really powerful um, really really powerful kind of saying because it's it, it you, you suddenly realize that it is kind of your choice there's obviously things that can like prevent us from doing certain things but there's a choice and then there's the action and you know following on from that so a uh, bit of background you you know you've written this book um flying higher say so, uh you you've had hit your fair share of overhead power lines so I'm sure we'll dig into that and hear a bit more about it yeah you wrote your draw playing rugby against Loughborough I think this is university times you had to drink through a straw for three months and ended up you went to a ball like the varsity um ball didn't you and ended up like challenging Dina Carroll to a, a drinking competition is that right yeah I did I I would had been invited to go to the varsity match with the captain of the Cambridge University you know rugby team which was a, a big thing and then a day before I broke my jaw and they operated on me and I was like out to here oh and I was devastated because all I cared about was what I looked like <clears throat> and then they like wired my jaws together um but um, actually, because it was a rugby ball, the guys all thought it was hilarious. And they were just making me drink champagne through a straw. And then Dina Carroll was one of the, the dates of one of the other guys. Oh, really? Yeah. I had to, I had <laughs> to Google Dina Carroll. I sort of remembered it, but I was like, do I know that? I was like, oh, you know, 90s singer. Yeah, she was lovely, by the way. Really lovely. <laughs> awesome. So, um, yeah, so, uh, it, you know, look, we're, we're starting and stuff. Look, what would be brilliant is just, to, you know, let's start with tell us a bit about your journey um, and, you know, how you got to where you are today, which is you're now on your yeah. entrepreneurial journey. So far away. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, all started um, a long time ago when I watched Top Gun and decided that I wanted to be a fighter pilot. And, um, uh, you know, my parents um didn't have the sense to talk me out of it you know which is kind of one of the first things is that no one put any barriers in my way to start with <clears throat> so you know joined the air force um went through flying training um tried tried my hand at fast jets um that didn't work out so I flew helicopters which turned out to be an absolutely fantastic career and you know I served 21 years in the air force so I, I served my last day July uh 2021 um so you know most of my life and um I suppose towards the end I became you know life gets ugly right you know it doesn't always run smooth and you know you kind of sink or swim I suppose and I was things were starting the penny was starting to drop for me that 
how we respond when things get difficult is a function of everything we've done before, you know, and all the beliefs that we have and the learned behaviors and the way we've learned to cope. Um, and certainly when I joined the Air Force 21 years ago, I think there was this idea that you're just born with it. You know, you're either tough or you're not. But I've come to realize that's a load of rubbish um, mm-hmm. and it's completely the mind is completely trainable. Um, and we can train it proactively. In fact, we have to train it proactively uh, because we can't rely on ourselves to just be naturally cool under pressure because we're not designed to be. So I became really interested in that and you know, realized that that was the key to performing better in the air. Um, so that was my new passion. And then I left the Air Force and set up a company called WellBeIt, which ostensibly was a mindfulness coaching company. And it kind of grew from there because... Although I was training people to, you know, to train your mind to feel as strong as you look, that's the title of the book. Um, I realized I had quite a unique um, privilege um, and experience to draw on because I could relate it back to my flying experience. So I could sort of show it working in action. And and I had that credibility and those stories that I could tell people to kind of bring it to life. And also to reassure people that it's not just about sitting in a field of daisies and going on. You know, there's a (laughs) lot more to it than that. Yeah, no, and that's it's amazing that you can draw on, you know, not many people can draw on being a helicopter pilot in the raft. So that I mean, those stories, uh, it's it's really powerful. Um, yeah, and you've you know, or, you know, known you for a number of years, but like that, there's so you've always had that. Um, yeah, that that sort of. I think you you even mentioned it in the book, like there's a sort of um, someone said that you're superhuman, but like there was always that, you know air about you like it was it was you know even on a night out it was like you were someone who who were you were very determined so you've always had that haven't you? you've always been like yeah. re- someone who just will will be willing to to just you know push push like how do you know where the edges if you if you mm. don't push you know I, I think you've always had that kind of like inner inner thing within you haven't you yeah and, and I think I probably got that from my mum you know and and it's you know you call it determination which is a lovely way to describe it uh, you know, at times it can be stubbornness, it can be awkwardness. Um, so, you know, I think part of it is realizing that it's a strength and not a weakness because it depends how you see it. Um, and, you know, and I think I was taught that from a from a, a really young age uh, or absorbed it without realizing it that actually just because, you know, when people say I can't do things, I just dig my heels in and go, nope, not accepting it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, look, let, we'll, we'll dig into that a, a bit more. Um, so, yeah tell us about the book and you know what what is um what why did you write it what what what's the you know there's always in theory a raison d'etre to write in a book so what's what was what were you trying to achieve um there's a sort of the book is definitely the favorite thing I've done because it um it aligns business purpose with personal purpose you know and that's that's the holy grail isn't it you know if you if you're self-employed and you're running your business you want to do something that you love and and fills you full of purpose so the business side was how do I get the message out to more and more people you know how do I become you know um global um and also you know it's credibility um you know and when motivational speakers stand on stage, which is what I am now, a lot of them kind of frisbee books into the audience because it's one of these things you're like, you're a speaker, really what, have you got a book, you know? <laughs> so there was a sort of definite business thing. It's like, wh- when are you going to publish your first book? Um, but it aligned perfectly with what I wanted to do because I love writing. Um, but mostly I've come to have a deep respect for human beings. You know, I just think that we are so incredibly resilient and so incredibly loyal and compassionate and wonderful 
um, that I really wanted it, and it sounds cheesy, but I wanted to kind of give this gift um, to the world. Um, I think Brian Cox talks about his book, The Human Universe, and he talks about his love letter to humanity. Um, and that's kind of what it is. I want, you know, the amount of people I've coached who are so talented and so lovable and so brilliant, and they doubt themselves all the time. And I know how that feels. And I just want to show people that, you know, they can dare to believe in themselves. And, and my book is how you take yourself on that journey to believe that you're actually really fantastic and you can achieve whatever you want to achieve. Awesome. Awesome um i'd like there's a there's quite a i suppose it's a um it'd be interesting to dig into the the hitting of um the overhead cables so yes <clears throat> talk us through like because it wasn't just once right it was a couple of well you weren't yes. the second time yeah. But <laughs> well, yeah, yeah exactly no i think i'm the i think i'm the only person in the air force that's hit wires twice um the uh yeah people often ask me like did you not get in loads of trouble but actually um the air force is very good um at having a kind of learning culture yeah. um but yes so hitting the wires that was um an incredible moment for lots of reasons um and i you know you made a comment earlier about you do something and it's the product of something that you know you've you've kind of put the work in and i think that was one of the key lessons i took away from it so i was well, there's two lessons. Um, I was flying through this valley in Morocco. I, mean, I was quite young, I was about 23 years old, uh, flying in my Puma helicopter. Uh, we're low flying, that's what helicopters do. So we're very close to the ground. We're about 50 feet off the ground, which is the height of a two-story building. We're going 140 miles an hour with our hair on fire. Um, great fun, to be honest. Um, and we're following you know, the Moroccan map, which um, perhaps was not up to the, the same sort of... Um, rigorous standards as the British maps. Suffice to say, we came around this corner and we smashed through these cables that were strung across this valley. And we hit, um, you know, there were three wires and we hit the hit the aircraft in three places. And the canopy just shattered, the cockpit got very noisy. I basically turned my helicopter into a convertible, you know, with there was no windshield. And, um, and I just remember thinking, oh, this is how I'm gonna die. And, you know, actually I remember thinking, oh, well that's, you know, there are worse ways to go and feeling quite relieved. Um, but the thing that happened next, this is the really kind of key moment. My instructor, who was sat in the left-hand seat, shouted, fly the aircraft, Sarah. And I didn't know it then, but this was a key moment because he brought my attention back into the cockpit. Mm. And that's important because with everything that is going on in the outside world, and with all the distractions that we have, and because of tech, we can be everywhere at once. But we've forgotten a fundamental human truth, which is our attention can only be in one place at a time. You know, mm. the, and the brain's not going to change anytime soon. We can only focus on one thing at a time. And I needed to be focusing on flying the aircraft, not thinking about my eulogy. Um, <laughs> and um, so when I then, many years later, got really interested in mindfulness and how to train the brain, I kind of realized, oh my God, that moment was kind of mindfulness in action because my mm. brain went off into a place it didn't need to go. And I was, you know, and all over the place and it needed to be on flying the aircraft. And that's what mindfulness is. Mm. So I was sort of re kind of, I don't know, reconstructing, I suppose, or going back through history and seeing all the things, all the, the, the groundwork that had been laid by the fantastic training that I'd had in the military and realized actually I can use this to deliver mindfulness to the world essentially mm. um yeah. but you know that I'm probably getting very excited and talking too much the key takeaway from this is 
we perform at our best when we focus on one thing and we choose what that one thing is in that moment. So yeah. ditch multitasking, start unitasking, and you will do it better and you will feel calmer. Yeah, no, it's, look, it really, again, that really resonated with me as, as well. I think I was fortunate, uh, like when I was growing, growing up, I, um, <clears throat> well, I used to show chickens, but that's a different story. But like then I got into windsurfing, then, uh, you know, fortunate enough to get into the British windsurfing team. But we had a coach like age 14, 15 and our coach um, and, and and actually, unfortunately, uh, so Chris Daisy was was our coach. Um, and he, he's unfortunately passed away recently, but he, he when I reached out to him to say thank you, you know, that you sort of like have that moment, you're like, I need to go and thank some people who's helped, who've helped me in life. And, uh, you know, it was about a year ago that I reached out to him and he wrote back saying, hey, you know, we were, the, 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 we were using the same model for the windsurfers as, you know, Ben Ainsley, Ainsley was getting with the sailors. And, mm -hmm. and that was all about where your head was. So it mm -hmm. was it was about, you know, on the board, were you thinking about like what was happening on the board, where the people you were trying to beat on the race course were or what the clouds were doing, you know, what's happening with the weather system. So, mm -hmm. but just the ability to think about where you were thinking was like, it was, was key. So, um, you know, and we all fall into the trap of multitasking uh, once you start, you know, running a business or being an entrepreneur or whatever, it's, 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 it's so tempting to think that you're achieving so much with, with uh, the, 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 the forever to-do list. So, yes. Um, and then, then the second time, um, I think you were, you were not, not dry, not flying the second time, but you're in the back, but then your response. Was... Uh, no, I was, I was, I was still on the front. Um, but yes, my response. Um, so the second time was about two years later, I was flying through the Y Valley uh, in Wales and I was the navigating pilot. So I had the map out and uh, you know, I was looking for all the wires. Uh, and I and <laughs> because it was a really windy valley. I don't know if you've been to the Y Valley, but it's a fantastic valley to fly down. And yeah. it's very I've flown down it. I've, I've yeah. paddleboarded down it, which is a bit different. <laughs> don't fly down it when I'm flying down it. It's disastrous. But um <laughs> uh, and actually also I'd flown down that from north to south in a hawk previous years. And I and I know that you know that's the flow. So I wanted to be make sure I was really low so we wouldn't crash into anything coming the other way. Um, and then we came around the corner and, you know, hit wires again. Um, but this this time I didn't, everything was just kind of instinctive. And I immediately did my emergency handling drills and I did the mayday call and all the rest of it. And we landed straight ahead and it was all kind of very calm, actually. And I remember when we landed, the captain turned to me and just went, he was just amazed. And he was like, how did you do that? Like I was still processing what had happened and you'd done everything um and I was like well you know I've done this before haven't I <laughs> but I think <laughs> the, the key kind of mindfulness takeaway is my brain knew what to do because I'd done it and, and I'd created those kind of neural pathways of you know trigger um action and the thing about mindfulness is that you can create helpful neural pathways between a trigger event you know how you interpret it and then what action you take that's mm. all up for grabs and, and, you know, and until you have that light bulb moment, you think, oh, well, I'll always be X. I'll always be this way under pressure or I'll always, you know, be a bit anxious. Actually, no, you know, all of this is stuff that we can do something about. Mm. Um, and, you know, that's the proof. So it was very helpful that I crashed into ours a second time so that I could do the proof of concept bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you couldn't plan to do what you did, but amazing that you yeah. <laughs> you got the you definitely got the learning. Like you know, there's the, the old adage: it's only a failure if you don't learn, right? So yes, yeah. So that's that's great. I mean, I suppose if you're trying to relate it back to business, um, yeah. And I guess like there's always this kind of 
um, parallels with with sport as well, where mm-hmm. you know if it's if it's a netball match, football match, whatever it is, like people were on the pitch playing as a team for a certain amount of time and then training the rest of the time. Mm-hmm. It's almost as if business is not thought about that. It's yeah. it, it's it's everyone's on the pitch all the time. Yeah, and well, I mean, I don't know. It just makes yeah, totally, it very hard for people to totally perform. Agree. And I think that's the thing that I. Having left the Air Force, I see things I never saw before <clears throat> because, you know, it's easy to think of people in the military were on the front line all the time and we're dodging bullets. We're not. You know, we probably spend 30 percent of our time in a war zone, which means we spend 70 percent of our time training. Mm. Now, when you're running a business or you're working in a big organization, that's just not going to happen because you, you can't. You know, I get it. It's unrealistic to go. You must train 70 percent of the time. But the reason we're good under pressure is because we put the training in. So how Mm. can you train, you know, within, you know, within your business? And I think it is learning from experience. Um, And I think it's easy to go, we made a mistake, therefore, um, you know, we've been a failure, we haven't learned. The reality is humans learn by making mistakes. So if we can change our mindset and go, I am learning on the job, um, and have a sort of training mindset and seeing every opportunity, every time you have a client conversation and if it goes badly, you go, OK, well, that's a learning opportunity. We can change our mindset and then we can start to really maximize the training that we're getting out of doing our job every day. Yeah. I mean, and then that sort of comes down to, um, you know, the culture values, um, it being a safe place to make mistakes. Um, you know, these are fundamentals because not all organizations have that. So you know a lot yeah. of the time there's there's a <clears throat> almost a, a, a fear um mm-hmm. culture um which makes it really hard to for people to experiment and um push boundaries because they don't want to you know they don't want to stick their head above the parapet it's it's um so it's quite you know i've always been a massive fan of the 20 percent time you know mm-hmm. don't know where it originally came from i know google you know have it where people are allowed are up to 20% of their time to develop themselves or something in the business and, okay. and try and push things forwards. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, again, it's not always realistic. I mean, you, you're looking at like pretty much a day a week or whatever, but um, which is a lot when you, when you think about yes. actually what that means. Um, yeah. But even, even still, if you, if you start to like edge towards that as a concept, I think it can, that, that creating a learning organization, means that it's able to innovate and able to like evolve mm. with what's happening in in the world I, I believe but yeah and also an environment where people will speak up um you know increases cognitive diversity because you know in the military we're quite a hierarchical organization so there's a danger you've got one person giving the orders and then 100 people following so really one person's doing the thinking mm. um, but really what you want is 100 people thinking for themselves so how do we encourage people to think for themselves and, and speak up and, and say what they're talking about and I think that's two-way thing by the way you know there's a lot of talk about psychological safety and we've got to make people feel safe to speak up um and that's obviously a leadership function that we can do. And, you know, one of the easiest ways to do that is to go first and share when you make mistakes and things like that. But mm. I think the other thing is realizing that um, no matter how good you are at leadership and no matter how many times you put your little culture thing on the wall, people, um, you can't make people feel something they don't want to feel. So as much as you want people to feel safe to speak up, it's their choice. Um, and I think we can recognize that it will always feel inherently risky 
to disagree with someone because we were people pleasers, you know, and, mm. we, and we don't like going against the grain. Mm. <clears throat> so what that means, <clears throat> pardon me, is that if someone speaks up, they've made a choice to be brave. Um, and I think we can start to celebrate a culture of bravery as opposed to waiting for it to feel safe because, you know, we could be waiting a long time for mm. that. And yeah. that's probably a privilege of having been in an organization where I did speak up. And that's because there was a lot of work that went into that. But I think it works both ways. It comes from individual responsibility of being brave and going first, but also the leadership and the culture setting the environment where, you know, people are rewarded for speaking up. Yeah, 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 yeah. Look, I mean, <clears throat> in each each business is a different culture and you can only look at, well, these are things, this is best practice or stuff I've seen work is, you know, what would work within your organization is often the kind of discussion that, that go that goes on. Um, yeah, I, I, I've i found that, you know, I screwed up cards to be really good and obviously <laughs> was the first one to having implemented it as sort of MD, I was the first one to uh, to fill it in, um, you know, and but it did, it did start to give people permission to not always get everything right and to also talk about it. Um, and I guess another another thing that I think is useful is an anonymous suggestions box and and, mm. and actually trying to do town halls. So you're you're basically, you know, once a month, giving the team the opportunity to ask questions that they might not want to ask in the room. But if you read out what someone's written down um, and it's funny, isn't it? It's like often it's like, why are we buying cheap ketchup is like the, the first thing yeah. that comes up. So, right. From now on, we're only going to get Heinz. <laughs> um, but it is a. um but it matters, right? So for some people, that really matters. And like, it, like you start to get into the nitty gritty of the real stuff once you get through the peripheral stuff. But just the team seeing that it's um, mm. that it's safe to ask questions, I think, is 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 really really powerful. So mm. um, yeah, okay, interesting. Do you think the do you think like you know the, the RAF and the military are changing in in the way in which they're trying to get like a hundred people to think? Yeah, I think. Um this sort of psychological safety is a real priority. It always has been because if we get things wrong, people die, you know, so we have to, and, and the thing is we're also in an inherently risky business because we go to war and we put people in risk. Mm. So we cannot expect everyone to come home. You know, that's the, that's the harsh reality. Um, so, you know, I think as an organization, it's incredibly always has been very committed to creating psychological safety and it's probably classed as one of the world leaders you know I used to teach it and we used to have people from air forces all over the world coming in and getting our training because we were seen as as kind of first class um in this area mm -hmm. um but I, I also do think you know and like I say probably as a privilege of having been an organization that had a really good culture I have still been in scenarios where no matter how many times I tell my crew it's okay for you to disagree with me. They won't because people would rather die than let you down. <laughs> um, so I think we've, I just think that we need to, rather than necessarily in, we want to look for psychological safety, but we also want to inspire people to be brave. You know, we've got to meet in the middle because there is going to be, we can't create a space where there is an absence of fear. You know, we're always going to feel fear. It's always going to feel inherently risky to do certain things. Um, and the thing about mindfulness is you can learn to tolerate your fear and you can do what feels right in the presence of fear. So I think mm. we need to give people this confidence that actually, even though it feels scary, you've got this, you can do this, you know, and mm. you can go first and you can stick your head above the parapet. Um, and that's how we kind of drive innovation. Mm. But if we wait for everyone to feel safe, well, I think we'll be wasting a long time.
yeah 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 and indeed you can't be brave if you if you're not afraid right so there needs to be a level of fear right it's a paradox (laughs) yeah no exactly um uh do you want is it worth um because you've you've got your model the the habits um you know it'd be nice yeah talk us through that just so yeah we understand a bit yeah sure um, so I mean I came up with that so habits um, is we love mnemonics at the Air Force. So it stands for healthy automatic behaviors in threatening scenarios, bit of a tongue twister, but uh, really all that means is you respond skillfully under pressure. And it looks at the components that you need to be able to respond under pressure. Um, and so, you know, the first thing is, you know, the first H then stands for kind of healthy stress versus unhealthy stress. Actually, there's no such thing as healthy stress um, stress is stress is stress but mm. I'm getting pernickety about language here the point is is that a little bit of pressure <clears throat> um, you know when we're in stretch is actually really really good for us but when we kind of go over the edge of the curve and we're in panic then our decision making goes down you know our emotion regulation is impaired so we snap at people and um, one of the problems is, is that you know society or I don't know maybe you're brought up with these beliefs is we expect to be naturally good when we're, you know, in fight or flight. And the only thing yeah. we're designed to do in that moment is run away or fight, you know, so we're not designed to think rationally under pressure. And we give ourselves such a hard time for not being good in this area. So actually one of the most important things we can learn is recognizing when we're in that acute stress and working out how to get back, you know, into stretch, because that's where the magic happens. Um, so that's the first H. <laughs> um, yeah. And, you know, a really simple thing we can do is just slow down our breathing because it just tricks our system into thinking that we're in rest and digest. It's incredibly effective. Um, so it's that, you know, operating in stretch, not uh, in panic. Um, and then, you know, the the habits, but, you know, the A, the A, B bit is about focusing your attention where you want it to be on one thing at a time if you want to achieve your maximum performance. Um, so that's A and B because it's attention and being in one place. And then the I is interferences. So great in theory to focus on one thing, but life still continues. We've still got things flashing at us. We've still got people that need us. So how do we signpost? How do we signal? Uh, and how do we set expectations so that we can give ourselves an hour a day to focus on our high value task? Mm. Um, and then there's the T is train hard, fight easy, which we sort of covered already. But really, again, it's, you know, we can't expect to be good under pressure unless it's an instinctive reaction because we will do what's instinctive so if you want to be good under pressure it has to be automatic we make something automatic by repeating it over and over and over and over again you know this from your windsurfing right so we we make it automatic and the way we make sorry we repeat it to make it automatic and the easy way to repeat something is to make it a habit because then you just do it every day without thinking about it. So that's mm. the whole train hard fight easy. And there's this idea that I know you touched on before that nothing happens by magic. Nothing is given to us, but it's all up for grabs. But it's all down to the work that we put in before the fact um, and trying to make it as routine as possible. Mm. Yeah. Um, okay. So, yeah. So that's that's a, a, a quick run through the habit. Yeah, no, no, I love it. It's, um, I, 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 you know, and, and you know. I'm a big fan of, uh, you know, creating like mnemonics as well. So um, <laughs> the, um, yeah, I, I guess for the listeners, it's it's really tricky because it's uh, it's it's sort of easy, easy-ish to say and then yeah. really hard to apply. Um, so let's just take, you know, that stretch kind of stress scenario. 
Um, okay. Are there, you know, and, and, and it's gonna be different for each person. You almost have to start to be good at noticing mm-hmm. what, when you're kind of just tipping over the, the, the edge. For people who don't know yeah. the diagram, is it's you stress and de-stress, isn't it? And it's kind of a, yes. and then you basically, if you just get over the top of it, your um, cortisol increases and your effectiveness basically drops through the floor. That's right, yes. Um, so it's, you know, you want to just be sliding up and down the, the, the top of the, 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 yeah. the slope at the top, but never popping over the edge. So yeah, what are some, of, what are some examples to, for people to, um, think about when they might have like you know popped over into uh, yeah uh, and I, that's it you know I think place. most people you know this is obviously an exercise I would often do in a workshop or when I'm coaching with someone but you know it is tell, tell me about a time when you've behaved in a way you regretted because that was almost certainly you under threat or under pressure um mm. and uh, what that tells me is that you haven't yet learned a skillful way of dealing with that threat that's all that tells me but the first thing is um, working out what you're, you know, how you know you've got there, but then working backwards and go, right, what was the trigger? What thoughts went through your head? How did you start to feel? What was your physiology? Did you did you feel hot? Did you feel tense? Did your jaw clench? So it's just starting to sort of develop a mental map of what you look like when you were under threat. Um, so then the next time it happens, you can sort of nip it in the bud. Or if you go over the line, which we do from time to time, we're human, you know, we've got a way of recognizing, going, oh, I kind of had a bit of an outburst there. I'm going to, you know, go for a walk, have some fresh air, have some, you know, do some breathing, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah. you're absolutely right. This is an exercise in um, self-awareness without beating the crap out of ourselves because we are human beings and we are not designed to be, you know, James Bond under stress. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And so for you, um, so then this kind of this mindfulness piece comes in and we've also got the uh, sort of empathetic witness that we can we can go into. Yeah, yeah, I I actually it'd be interesting to hear your mindfulness story. I remember being in I was in a group like in a workshop and someone at the the, the basic person running the workshop went round the group um, and and we all knew each other. We'd already done like, you know, a retreat or something. So we knew like the background of everyone. And she went around the room and got absolutely everyone's nailed, like everyone's what was going on in their life. Like you've got, you know, challenges at the moment with your, um, you know, with your, your your dad, you need to go and resolve those. You know, you've you've got like things going on in work. That you, you She was just like spot on. We knew wow. all the backgrounds to everything. She got to me and she, and I was like, oh, my God, what's she going to bloody say to me? Like, <laughs> how does she know this about all these people? And she got to me and just she just said, oh, look, you know, you stick your neck out. You're always gunning for the next thing. You're always driving. You need to meditate. And that was it. So I was like, all right, mm. OK, I probably should meditate then. Um, and it was a real, real moment like that when that I hadn't realized like how much stress I was under. You know, we were mm. we were growing a business from three to fifty people over twelve years. I sort of stepped into the MD role. We went from two point eight to eight point nine mil turnover in one year, and I, you know, and I was just like had all this stress yeah. on me. Definitely starting to get like stomach ulcer or whatever. So, and like mindfulness was this like uh, my body like you know what's the what's it's that kind of um, reward system was mm. just like thank you like I just mm-hmm. so much um you know uh whatever it is serotonin whatever it was that rushed through my body as a result mm. of doing mindfulness that you know I basically I don't do it all the time but it kept that practice yeah. up a lot just to and, and I now I can do it really quickly and I can do 
you know, yeah. just very, that's the brilliance of once you've understood yes. it. So yeah. how about yourself? What was your journey? No, and that's, it's a really exciting point that you can get to where it just becomes a framework. It becomes a mindset as opposed to something you have to do, you know, and I still practice it every day, but it just becomes a way, a lifestyle choice. Um, just, it's a way you see things. But I think, um, I think there was a couple of light bulb moments. One was I was actually in therapy uh, or, you know, doing counseling. And um, yeah. and I said, oh, but I'm, you know, I'm fiery or I'm moody or whatever I said, um, which is all true, by the way. And she said, that's the narrative you've got in your head about yourself. Because I think I said something like, oh, I can't, how, how can I help that? You know, I'm just a moody person. And she said, that's the narrative you've got in your head. And I was like, what, what do we mean? What narrative? What, is, what are you talking about? Um, <laughs> and then I realized, oh my God, these are the stories we tell ourselves. And don't get me wrong, I probably always will have a go-to, you know, where I'm, I tend to be more fiery than I am submissive type thing. But the first sort of life-changing moment for me was that you can choose how you respond to your feelings and thoughts you know they pop up very quickly so you can't necessarily stop thinking and mindfulness isn't about drowning out the thoughts or having an empty head and walking around in a vacuum it's about seeing them and going but I can choose what to do I can choose to engage with it or I can choose to go oh that's you know feisty Sarah that's come to say hello and I can say thank you very much and on you go yeah, <laughs> and yeah, that yeah. was amazing to me that I had a choice about how I engaged with my emotions um so that was the first thing and the second thing was emotions are transient um but they also want an audience you know because let's think about it you know anxiety fear sadness they're all trying to tell us something they're all there to protect us you know we we see them as bad but they're actually our most loyal friends so I think once we learn just to give them an audience for 30 seconds, sometimes we just need to grieve or just need to let ourselves feel pissed off about something and let ourselves do that and then go, right, but it's no longer serving me to engage with this. So now I'm moving on. So right. it's that kind of balance of acknowledging and accepting that emotion without shame and then going, and now it's time to move on and mm. I'm going to focus on something else. Um, and that changed my life. Mm. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah um and it's almost a and again you you talk about empathetic witness it's the point at which you can almost see yourself I, I I call it the art of looking sideways I don't know why yours is a way better way of describing it but um I sort of <laughs> say to people like you almost need to be able to remove yourself and look at what yeah you, you know what what's really really happening and mm. it's almost you know look in a systems mindset concept like we, you, we are always part of the system like we're it, and and the system is just where we decide you know if we want to look at a system we have to decide where we draw the boundaries on the system and so mm -hmm. um yeah we've always got some kind of influence or and there's leverage points in the system and so on and so forth so you kind of there's 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 so much you can do once you kind of I suppose mm -hmm. that's talking about power isn't it it's realizing like if you're able to see yourself uh, as an empathetic witness you're suddenly able to start understanding um a yeah. like what what it what your situation might really be rather than like what it feels like to be in it um and and yeah look and also you know empathy for others is is hugely mm. powerful definitely I, I, I've seen if you if you if you basically if you want to if you want to work out whether what you're suggesting or like doing with someone is right try it on yourself first and see how mm. it feels and there's a real there's a real realization is like well I wouldn't like it if someone did that to me or whatever or you know approach me in that yeah. way so th there's these things that we're not really taught to to, mm. to to 
it, you're not taught it at school miles from it mm. so yeah talk, talk us through you know your your sort of viewpoint on being an empathetic witness yeah again so I think and this is something that came to me much later in life but um I think the, the key outcome that you get is kind of self-sufficiency and confidence um because our I worry there's a bit of a narrative out there that says, you know, particularly with COVID uh, and, you know, the, the limelight on mental health, we think that if people are stressed, that, that there's something wrong and that we're broken. Or if we think if people are sad, then there's something wrong. So we're getting this message over and over again that we're a bit broken. And then we go, yeah, I'm a bit broken, actually. But actually, you know, again, emotions are there to sort of try and protect us. It doesn't mean they always help us, but they are trying to help us. But I think a lot of my clients will go, well, I wouldn't be thinking if it wasn't true. So what does that say about me? What does it mean? And we're looking for this meaning all the time. I'm like, you know, the reason that I um, doubt myself is because I'm a terrible person. And, the re- you know, I've got imposter syndrome. But what if it was just, it is just what it is. And you can just acknowledge it and go, yeah, I have self-doubt because I'm a human being. Actually, probably quite good that I'm not completely on my own ass all the time. <laughs> so I think it just gives you an ability to see emotions for what they are. You know, they are data, not directives. And once mm. you kind of give them an audience, they are kind of, they leave, they leave you alone. So, mm. and, and I think the outcome from that is you feel confident in your ability to, you know, navigate whatever life throws at you um, and you get self-belief. And, you know, if there was one ingredient that I could give everyone, particularly when we're, you know, entrepreneurs and running businesses, but let's face it, we all need it. It's just to believe in ourselves a bit more. Um, and I think when you can just sit with a difficult thought or a feeling and go, it's not going to kill me. Uh, it doesn't mean anything. It's just there to try and help me. And I'm just going to witness it and let it go. Then you go, huh, actually kind of stronger than I thought. You know, I can tolerate this. I'm actually, you know, I'm pretty strong. And, you know, I just want people to feel a bit more of that. And then when you've got that kind of ingredient, you feel like you can kind of take on everything. Mm, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, amazing. Um yeah, there's there's another bit around mindfulness, and uh, and we, we kind of know that we've got the sort of subconscious and and conscious, and obviously mm. everything's filtered in the conscious, and the the subconscious is it's 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 almost like a, a accessing a different um you know a way a different yeah. way of thinking. I guess it is more feeling than, than thinking, as it as it were. But um, yeah, I, I find mm. it interesting. I mean, I I don't know for sure, but it feels a bit more like when you're meditating and using mindfulness that you're accessing the subconscious a bit more than the the conscious mind I I don't know whether you agree with that or yeah and I think that's it you know none of us really fully understand it yet um so yeah you know that's why I think sometimes the language is quite vague and it took a long time for the penny to drop about mindfulness it's like what you know what is it and I I do a headspace every day and I think Andy from headspace is brilliant at explaining Mm. it um, and I learn something new every day. So, you know, I think it's very hard to sort of reduce mindfulness to that one thing that it is. But ultimately, you know, it's a sort of learning about yourself, befriending yourself and realizing you've got everything right here to to study the human mind, which means we've got everything right here to study other people's minds and feel a sense of you know humanity and connection. So you know, when I, you know, you were going to talk about the story of, of Janet, you know, and when she learned to sit in her own pain, when mm. she finally managed to do that, she, re- you know, she realized she wasn't alone and actually started to feel more connected to the rest of the world because we all experience suffering and we all want to be free of it. You know, mm. that's, you know, I wish we could turn it off, but we can't. Yeah. 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 
I love that you call it winefulness as well. I think that's a <laughs> <laughs> many forms of mindfulness. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's the thing. You know, mindfulness is a, a, a commitment that we make to training our brain, but there's no rule that says the training can't be fun. So, mm. you know, as long as you're focusing your attention where you choose it to be, that is practicing mindfulness. Um, and you can do that by focusing on having a glass of wine. Why not? <laughs> Maybe not at 12.41 in the afternoon. But no, not yet. <laughs> well, it's PM. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, yeah. And somewhere in the world, it's even later. So, hey. Well, exactly. Um, yeah, sort of touched on it a little bit earlier. I, I, was in, I was interested to see, I think it was the Alison Carter study that said, like, delving into the past can be counterproductive. Mm. Like, yeah, do you, did you sort of what's your um definitely uh it's such a great point so Alison Carter did a study on mindfulness in the military and uh I think uh two really big takeaways resonated with me the first thing is um in theory everyone can practice it um but this empathetic witness distress tolerance thing we've talked about I would generally introduce that later on down the line I think the first thing we need to learn is how to let go because if we don't know how to let go of something then the temptation is we hold on to something and with mindfulness we can sit in observation and we can observe ourselves but if we get that wrong and we end up reliving something then we can essentially re-traumatize ourselves. And every time we remember something, we put a slightly different blueprint on it and we can mm. actually make things worse. You know, they say time's a great healer. Not always, depends what mm. you do with it. So if you relive something and make it a little bit worse every time, um, it, it can actually do more harm than good. So we need to be able to observe it. But I think the other key thing is we make it time bound. So let's just say we want to sit with a feeling of fear or sadness. We sit with it for 30 seconds or a minute and then we let it go. So I personally wouldn't try doing distress tolerance until I'd learned to let go first, because you've got to you've got to be able to do that or else it becomes self-harm. Mm. Um, so that was a really key point. The other thing that came out of Alison Carter's study was that team mindfulness um, was something that people in the military really really kind of really got on with and that just means being mindful of your team you know checking in with other people so you can have an increased increased awareness of yourself but you can also have an increased awareness of others you know how are they showing up what are they saying what are they not saying how are they holding themselves you know and actually again that's that is very mindful and kind of reflecting outwards and being compassionate and when you do that you actually sort of fill the fill the world up with warmth <laughs> um yeah. that's something that comes quite naturally to people in the military because we we work in teams all the time yeah 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 no it's um <clears throat> no it was, it was really interesting to, to see it because yeah there's there is um the you you can you can end up it's, it's a bit like do you listen to the you know the stories of the past or like do you do you try to remember the future as it were do you try to create mm -hmm. a future that you you want and you know certainly in business that's like how how I work with people is to try to get people to imagine you know something different like how it could be different where are you understand that but like how could it be different and almost um approach yeah. it from a um as if you're there yeah so use techniques to get people to you know mm -hmm. call it future facing like actually okay. write it in the present as yeah. if you're there um and as if it's happened yeah and, and like, I don't want to get into like the manifesting kind of like mm. argument but it 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 there's something in 
creating a stronger um like vision and voice of the future and this whole concept is you know if you don't have a big enough dream then you become part of someone else's so you know Mm. when working with entrepreneurs it's like you you really need this dream to be big and others yeah part of yours yeah but I think you know, I, I would be wary of talking about manifesting, but I tell you what, it's worked for me. And because our thoughts and feelings and our behaviors all link, you know, if you say something, you start to feel it. You know, again, what Henry Ford was saying, if you think you can't do it, you probably can't. And if you say enough times and crap at volleyball, guess what? You crap at volleyball, you know. Um, and this really worked for me in a positive way because um I was really cheeky and that I desperately wanted to get into Henley Literary Festival with my first book. Um, and I sort of went on a campaign of influence slash bullying. And I wrote a few articles for Henley Stands and Henley Life. And that's, you know, at the bottom would always say Sarah Furness is writing her first book, which will be published in time for Henley Literary Festival. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, but, and I emailed them kind of every couple of months going, is there, is there space yet? And eventually they went, go on then. <laughs> so I got, you know, so it came true. And, you know, I don't know if that's because they got bored of hearing from me, but I thought, you know, I'm taking a risk here. I could look a bit stupid, but, you know, who cares? So you just say this stuff. And, you know, I think because you're demonstrating that commitment and your brain is very good at delivering whatever you tell it to. So if you say it, it I think it does happen. It does work, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I do. I, 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 I don't know how it works. And I, and I do think we need to be careful with, um, it, it, you know, the, the fad element of, of, yeah. sort of, I think there's even like a Netflix thing on, on it right now. Uh, you know, it's a, it's almost become a religion right so yeah but um so we do need to be careful with it um I agree and also I think it's worth pointing out we can it can work the other way um so one of the things I talk about in my talks is the power of choice and how we unwittingly give choices away all the time and one of my pet phrases is when someone says um so-and-so makes me happy or so-and-so makes me sad the reality is although it might not feel like it you choose how you feel um, and when you practice mindfulness you realize you have a lot more choice than you than than previously you thought but you know if you get angry because your partner left out the dishes that's your choice to get angry so mm. it doesn't mean that you're not you're not allowed to get angry or, or be annoyed but we're giving our power away all the time and saying so and so has the power for me to feel a certain way and when we say this over and over again our brain starts to believe it and there's a story I tell about you know when I picked my son up from nursery and he was two and a half so he could barely speak and the nursery worker ran out to me when I um, went to pick him up and she said oh Sarah you've got to hear what happened today um you know Arthur he was playing alongside this other kid and the kid dropped their toy and the toy broke and Arthur turned around to this kid and went how does that make you feel um and like everyone thinks this is adorable but I'm like oh my god from the age of two and a half <laughs> you know <laughs> apparently we're using language which is giving our choices away this is terrifying <laughs> um, so you know it's becoming aware of the words we say do matter and they can work in a positive and a less positive um frame of mind so if we can be mindful about the words we use you know mm. a lot of that you know that can go a long way mm. yeah 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 super interesting um it's yeah there's there's a uh... I think there's also an an element of not making the sort of subconscious mind think that you're lacking, you know, Mm -hmm. by saying you want something can also sound like you don't have, you know, so you've got to be careful about like how you paint like the the, the vision and look in in business, putting it back to business, Mm. um, you know, profit is an output from having like the, the, like having purpose, a plan, 
you know, mm. ha- having like a learning environment for your team, like having systems so that you, you've got efficiency and repeatability, you know, knowing like what your sales cycle and delivery cycle are like, these are all like functions and profit is the, the, the output. So, you know, alter, but that is as a result of delivering value to the customer. So, mm-hmm. you know, your, your, your focus needs to be on the delivering the value and, and, yeah. and the, um, you know, profit is the thing that is as a result of doing all the other, like the other work. And it, and it, and I, and I see it so often where people are focusing on profit. I mean, it is a sort of starting point. Businesses have to make money, but you want to sort of take it to a high level. Thinking about Maslow, you know, yeah. again, it can be a little bit um, cliched, but you're trying to get up to sort of self-actualization in the organization, not worry about food, shelter, water, you know, at the bottom. Yes. Yeah. Um, you, you talk about victim mentality uh, um, in in the book. Is there, mm-hmm. yeah, anything that you think would be useful for the audience to hear um, regarding oh, that? Definitely. Uh, um, I think, it, you know, I have definitely been there. Uh, you know, I've definitely been that person that has, you know, um, been a bit of a victim. And it's a very unflattering phrase. And it's the last thing that anybody wants to think of themselves as. Um, and, you know, one of my jobs now is to go first and go, yeah, I definitely had a victim mindset. <laughs> I and mean, really what it means is you're giving your power away and you're waiting for someone to fix a problem for you. Um, it's not a design, but it is a design flaw. It's not your fault. You know, Seligman did experiments in the 70s to prove that this is something that can be, um, you can be conditioned into learnt helplessness. That was the phrase he came up with. But what yeah. that means is, you it actually comes down to sort of lack of self-belief because you don't believe that you have the power to change your situation so you stay miserable and you blame other people because it's more comfortable to blame others than it is to blame yourself you know we, mm. the last thing we want to do is think that we're responsible for our own pain or for our own lack of progress in a business um so i think the first thing to understand is it's a completely normal thing to do you know actually taking responsibility for choices is scary you know <laughs> um so there's no shame required uh, if we recognize that actually we've been kind of blaming other people and pointing the finger a bit. But if you do that um, and you recognize that, that's an opportunity to go, OK, life's not fair. I can maybe do a bit of distress tolerance and spend 30 seconds going about it. And then after 30 seconds, I'm going to go, what can I do in my circle of influence that will have a positive impact? And, you know, um, a top tip here is the things we can influence are me. You know, what other people do, um, you know, we care about and we can have some influence on. But ultimately, because of this thing called free will, we don't get to decide what other people feel, think and do. We can decide what we feel, think and do. So start here. So spend a minute having a moment if you want and then go, right, circle of influence time. What am I going to do? What's my next move? And that's how you move out of victim mindset into, you know, a position of power. Yeah. Amazing. Um I've seen a mod. I've seen a model. I, I think. <clears throat> I think it's referred to as uh, the sort of levels of. Mm, it, it, I. I. The thing is, I like it in a business term, but I think it's kind of like spirituality levels, which is weird. So it goes. If you say it, if you say it's that, then you immediately turn off like half the business world. So, but mm. the model is, I think, fundamentally like you know spot on because once you get out of victim mentality you then effectively are in a success state but that success state is you being successful yes um and that's brilliant and until they then bloody promote you into a management role and you're (laughs) used to being successful but 
you're not used to sort of sharing that success. I, I, I struggled with this loads when I um, started going up, you know, th through the ranks and so on in terms of management. And um, I actually ended up getting like hypnosis to like deal with it because I had to switch. And because especially like windsurfing, like British Youth Windsurfing yeah. team, it's just you on the board, like just you, you, you either like, yeah. you know you've got your team behind you at, for sure like mum on the beach like getting getting food yeah. you've got you know your coach and so on but on the day you on the board kind of you know you 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 make or break that so it I, it really I had to sort of it was it was really interesting it was only about like 50 minutes they took me into it was just like sitting on the beach having hearing the waves sort of like lapping yeah. the shore in the background so you're, you're totally aware of stuff but they get you to consider um like the it was sort of like this sort of bit weird but like a tree of success rather than individual success okay and like embracing that and it was weird like literally left there with a completely different mindset that okay, success now looks like the team doing well yeah um so personally you know that was a change in a belief and it completely mm. changed my behavior and and yeah. to be honest, it, it was it was a perfect time because I was a I was about a year off stepping into an MD role rather than just right. a smaller team. And yeah, so it was about losing the need for control. Mm. So it was a control need that basically yeah, okay. yeah. allows, allows that shift. Um, so and yeah, I think that, there's, there's that, other, there's other levels in the model, but. Okay. I was going to say, that's also sounds like kind of reframing, which I found incredibly powerful um, because also, you know, we have setbacks along the way. And I'm not saying that we have to be artificially cheerful all the time and go, yay, I failed. Woo. You know, no one likes failing. It's fine. Um, but, um, you know, I know one of the things we talked about earlier was waiting for the conditions, you know. So, for example, unitasking. OK, I guarantee you, if you spend an hour in the day focusing on one thing at a time, you'll do it better. But people will say, but that's really hard because I've got, you know, I'm, I'm a solopreneur and I've got to be on all the time or da, 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 da. Um, and so what we're doing is we're waiting for the conditions to be perfect. And they never will be for unitasking. That's not the trajectory that we're going in here. You know, tech is only going to make us be in more places at once. But that's exactly why the juice is worth the squeeze. Because if we persist, even though it's hard, where other people don't, then we've got an edge. You know, we're 40% more effective than our competitors. Um, let's be honest. So I think, you know, if we can reframe it and go, yes. That's a barrier, but that's not actually a reason to give up. That's a reason to push because no one else will, you know, and we've we've got a kind of competitive edge here. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. And there's and there's that interestingly, you know, what 90 percent of businesses don't make it beyond two years. And, it, and it's super interesting. I'm just the other side of the two years now. And suddenly it's <laughs> just started to. It's a bit weird. I imagine that there's like. So and, and it's been hard. It's been really hard, um, you know, to stay like to keep pushing and to keep trying to like get things to work. But slowly things have slotted into to place. Mm. And, th and there's also an element of maybe the ones that started out two years ago, 90 percent of them have just decided not to bother. So there's only 10 percent of us left in this. <laughs> you know, I don't know, but it's, it's, yeah. it's super interesting. Like, you know, I, I always I always relate uh, like businesses about surviving today to take advantage of tomorrow type thing. It's a bit like you just need to like, you know, keep 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 in there, keep keep pushing and you'll start yeah. to get your like breakthroughs. So, yeah, um, we're running we're running out of um, time. There's, a, there's a, like, one last um, piece on, I suppose, practical steps. And I, I, I love Eisenhower Matrix. So just uh, use it as 
you know, whenever I get stuck, pull out the Eisenhower matrix. Like, just talk us through through that. That would be great. Uh, yes. So the Eisenhower matrix is where you've got a kind of two axes and you've got urgent and important. That's what you're talking about. Yeah. 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 Um, so if something is urgent and important, so you put it in that box, which for me is top right, um, then obviously that's something that you're, go you're going to do. You know, you need to do it. And that would be a brilliant thing to unitask on as well. Um, but then you've got something which is urgent, but not important. And I caveat that with it's not important that you do it. Uh, I'm not talking about fobbing off stuff that you hate, although that is why we have accountants at the end of the day. Um, <laughs> but, you know, urgent but not important is a prime space for delegating. You know, it needs to be done. But do you need to do it? And is someone else? Is there a system or a person that could do it for you? And also, if you're just thinking slightly bigger picture here, if you've got a team that you're expanding, if you can delegate a task to someone that is just ever so slightly out of their comfort zone it's just giving them a tiny bit more responsibility then you're starting to grow your team as well so you can be quite clever in what you delegate and it's not just about fobbing stuff off it's about empowering people mm. um giving them more responsibility than they might have chosen for themselves um so that's the delegate and then you've got um important not urgent that's right yeah um and that's the stuff you plan you know you put it in diary and you plan it out um, and that could also be when people come to you and go, I need your help with this. And you're like, OK, um, I can definitely I definitely want to help you and I can help you this afternoon. And what's brilliant is when we do that, a lot of the time people work their stuff out. And so they've learned something and they've gained in confidence and you've been able to get on with your urgent important. And then there's the not urgent, not important, um, which is what we get rid of. Um, and I'm going to steal a comment from um Deborah Joseph, who I met the other day, she's uh, was the editor, is the editor in chief of Glamour, an amazing woman. And she talked about 70%, choosing the 70%, i.e., she started consciously dropping the, the bottom 30%. You know, she was dropping balls. Mm. And I think that's a lot of things that we don't do. We don't give ourselves permission to go, don't need to do that. You know, just mm. get rid of it. And we write this to-do list out and then we we get to the bottom of it or get to the end of the day and go, haven't finished it. I'm going to put that onto the next day. Maybe it wasn't important enough. Give it a good hard Paddington stare and decide if it still <laughs> needs to be on your list, you know. Um, yeah. So be prepared to discard. So I think, um, you know, do it, delegate, plan um, and discard. That's your Eisenhower matrix. And I, and I use that um, and I found that to be very helpful. Yeah, nah, awesome. Nah, it, it, again, that was one of those, the day I found it was the day I got understood that urgent isn't the thing that we should be looking at. It's like, how important is this to do? Yeah. Um, and, and you know, we, we in the sort of cohorts that we run, we talk about, you know, you don't want a to-do list, you want a to-be list. So when you wake up, who do you need to be today to like, yeah. you know, yeah. um, <clears throat> to, to... I think, to... Um, I, know, uh, I know we're short on time, but I want to say one more thing on this. When we're under stress, we prioritize everything as urgent important. So if you write your list out when you're stressed, it will be too long. So mm. if you do go back to it when you feel calm and then, and then recategorize, it's not your fault. It's what the brain does to try and keep everything front of mind. Um, so it's just something to be aware. We're not very good at prioritizing under stress. It's worth interesting. Yeah. Okay. Right. I might need to do mine again, like <laughs> later in the week. Then <laughs> It's been a really busy week. Um, so look, uh, final, final couple of bits. So book recommendations uh, other than flying higher, obviously uh, anything uh, else that you'd recommend to people to read? Yeah. I love Tim Ferriss, uh, four hour work week. Um, I talk about him all the time. Uh, what else? What have I got in my bookshelf? 
Um, I've got loads. Tim Ferriss would be my starting point. In terms of kind of, you know, the mind map stuff uh, or understanding the mind, uh, you know, it all started for me with the chimp paradox. Um, you will get yep, it from Hayek, obviously, but chimp paradox changed my life. So, you yep. know, from kind of personal development uh, point of view, um, is that enough to, to get going? Yeah, that's brilliant. In the book, you talk okay. about why we sleep, which is on my to listen yeah. list because I, I, I'm pretty sure I'm like undiagnosed ADHD. So I, I, I can listen. I find it really hard to sit and read, read a book. But I did sit and read yours. So there you go. Amazing. Another breakthrough. Um, so in less than, uh, yeah, so that's why we sleep by Matthew Walker, I think. Um, yeah, that's so, right. Yeah. Let, 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 let people uh, go, go and uh, search that out. Um, yeah, so finally less than 20 words, you know, what, what would you say to people to try and like get the most out of 2023? Uh, my personal mantra um, is go first. Um, you know, just be brave, say the thing that you think is stupid or do the thing that you think is um, daft, but you sort of weirdly believe in and just go first, because not only does that give you a competitive edge, but in my experience, most people are really um, grateful to you for showing the way, you know, and you're actually not just doing yourself a favor in, in terms of business, you're doing other people around you a kind of kindness. Um, so just go first. That's what I would say. Awesome. Thank you, Sarah. So uh, there you have it. Um, you know, how we think and feel is a choice. Uh, sitting with difficulty is a skill. Um, yeah, we're, we're only born with, um, I don't know if we mentioned this, but it's definitely in the book. We're only born with two fears, so falling and loud noises. All the others are learned, so it can be unlearned. Um, so hopefully you feel like you can go out and push um, and move bigger mountains in 2023. Next Wise Wednesday will be on Web3 and understanding how to navigate that as, you know, in, as startups and entrepreneurs. Um, I'm sure Sarah won't mind you reaching out to her uh, via LinkedIn or you know, uh, her website. Uh, finally, thank you so much, Sarah. I've absolutely loved it today. It's been amazing uh, chatting you. to you. Uh, could have gone on for another hour. Um, yeah. And thank you. Yeah. So thank you. Um, thank, thank you to you, the Ralph. audience for uh, listening uh, and hope uh, everyone feels a little wiser this Wednesday as a result of joining us. So thank you. Thank you. Take, Take care. care. See you all soon.